This morning we begin a new sermon series on Abraham and what it means to develop a faith that will last throughout all seasons of life. And the really cool and special thing about this series is that not only do you get to hear about it on Sunday morning, but Kevin has also developed a curriculum that'll help us discuss it during our small groups and home team times as well. And so hopefully if you're in a home team on the way in, you grabbed one of these. If not, you can grab one on the way out. And so what you'll hear on Sunday morning is also what you'll be discussing throughout the week during your adult home team groups. In fact, all of our students attended the first hour at nine o'clock service and they're in small groups now uh, digesting and discussing the sermon from today. And so if you're not in a home team, again, I wanna encourage you to do that. And if you are, please make sure you grab one of these booklets so that you can discuss the message and the content throughout the week in your context of home teams. I'd love to read the passage together this morning. It comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses one through nine. You can read that, uh, it's on your bulletin. You can also follow along in your copy of God's word and it'll be on the screen as well. This is what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we affirm that your word is inerrant, inspired through the Holy Spirit. And in it is everything that we need to follow you, to be complete and mature. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through Pastor Kevin today and that you would give him clarity of thought as he communicates your word, God. And, and Holy Spirit, we also ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would illuminate this text to us as we, as we read it together, as we hear it being preached, that you would use it to convict us, to encourage us, to challenge us and to teach us more about who you are, God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for being here today. And if you are in our overflow room, or if you're watching us online, uh, I'd like to say welcome to you. Also, Stephen mentioned that we are beginning a new series today on Abraham, and that there are study guides for you, all of you who are in, in one of our small groups. Um, and so we will, on Sunday mornings, just, uh, talk about the passage that you will be discussing during the week in your small groups. 
Um, this series is called Abraham. It's on developing a faith uh, for all seasons. And then in the introduction uh, to this study guide, I talk about the uh, account of the space shuttle Challenger explosion uh, that happened on January 28th, 1986. That was actually the 10th mission of the space shuttle Challenger, but what made it unique was this was the first time in the history of NASA that an ordinary citizen was part of the space mission. A lady named Krista McAuliffe, who was a high school social studies teacher from New Hampshire, had been chosen out of thousands of applicants to accompany the astronauts on this mission of the space shuttle um, as a way to, for her to be able to film videos and for them to get students interested in space uh, travel. And so there was a lot of buzz about this particular mission. It was televised. People from all over the country watched um, as the space shuttle prepared to launch from the uh, Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. It was a very cold morning, and so there were a number of delays, but finally at 8.38 a.m., the space shuttle Challenger launched, and for exactly 72 seconds, everything went in typical fashion. However, at precisely 73 seconds after the launch, the space shuttle exploded. Debris fell into the Atlantic Ocean as hundreds of observers at the Kennedy Space Center and as a nation watching via television watched this tragedy unfold before their eyes. Then President Reagan called for a swift and immediate investigation to determine the reasons behind this unbelievable disaster. And after <clears throat> a lot of analysis and a lot of inquiries, it was determined that the reason behind the space shuttle explosion was the failure of a rubber O-ring on one of the rocket launchers. On the morning of the launch, the temperature at Cape Canaveral dropped to an unusually low 22 degrees. The freezing temperature caused this rubber O-ring to contract and it allowed hot gas to leak from the motor into one of the fuel tanks, which resulted in an explosion that completely destroyed the space shuttle and took the lives of all on board. In other words, this multi-million dollar NASA-designed and constructed space sh uh, shuttle that had the capacity to go into space and to circle the Earth with all the things that it could do, it could not function in cold weather. When the temperature dropped below freezing, it could not function. As long as the weather was warm, it could work just fine. But when it turned cold, it would not work. I wonder how often our faith in God works in a similar way. As long as things are going well, as long as everything is sunny and nice, as long as it's warm, our faith in God is strong. And we say, God, I trust you. As long as things are going well in the family, as, as long as we're healthy, as long as finances are good, when you make the team, when you get the good promotion, when you get the raise, when the deal works out exactly how you want it to work out, it's easy to say, God, I trust in you. You are good. I believe in you. My faith is strong. 
But when the weather isn't so sunny, when it turns cold, when the doctor comes in and says, I, I'm sorry, I know this isn't the report that you wanted to hear, or the boss says, I've got to let you go, or the coach says, I'm cutting you from the team, or the girlfriend says, we need to talk, can we just be friends? Yeah. Or the finances go south, or the big bill comes, and you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet, when things aren't going well in the family, when everything turns south in those times, that's when our faith is tested. And are you and I still able to say during those times, God, even in the midst of these circumstances, I trust you. I still trust you. You are still good, even with everything that I'm facing right now. And so in this series, we're going to talk about what we can do to strengthen our faith so that through all the seasons of life, no matter what we face in life, we are able to say to God, God, I still trust you, even though this is going on in my life. And so for all of us in here, if your faith right now on a scale of one to 10, if you would say it's at a six, when we get to the end of this 10-week series, I would hope you'd say it's at a seven or an eight. Or if it's at a two or a three, hopefully you can move up to a five. And for some of you in here, your faith right now may be at a zero, meaning you're not a follower of Christ. You've never made that decision to put your faith, your trust in Christ. And my sincere prayer is not at the end of this series, at the end of this time today, that you will say, I'm willing to take that step of faith and move my faith from a zero to somewhere on that scale. For all of us, I hope that we move somewhere up on that faith meter to strengthen our faith in God. So when the crisis comes, when the cold wind blows through our lives, we're able to say, God, I still trust you. Today, we're starting this series with Genesis 12, one through nine. The passage <clears throat> that you heard Stephen read earlier, let me give you just a little bit of background before we jump into this passage and specifically the first three verses. The first is this, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover the beginning of creation. In other words, Genesis is broken to two volumes. The first volume is about the beginning or the Genesis of the world. And it covers God's creation, it covers the fall of man, it covers uh, the flood, it covers the Tower of Babel. That's the first volume of Genesis. The second volume of Genesis are chapters 12 through 50, and that covers the beginning or the Genesis of the nation of Israel. It's the beginning of the people of God that God calls to himself, the Jewish people. And it's the second volume of Genesis that we're going to look at in this series. Third thing you need to know is that Abraham was born with the name Abram and his wife was called Sarai. However, for the sake of simplicity, throughout this series, I will refer to them as Abraham and Sarah, even though their names were, later, uh, were, were changed later in the series. Except when reading the passage, I'll refer to them by their changed names. And number four, Abraham was a son of Terah, and had two brothers. He was one of three sons. They resided in a place called Ur, or sometimes called Ur of the Chaldeans. Most scholars believe that Ur was located in what is present-day southern Iraq, near the Persian Gulf. 
Uh, there was an archaeological dig in the 1920s that turned up this as the name of a community there. It was actually a very advanced society. Uh, that's the only evidence, however, that lends itself to, to that being the location. Uh, there, Terra lived with his three sons. Uh, there was a brother of Abraham known as Haran. Uh, Haran had a son named Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. Lot would would be featured predominantly uh, in the story of Abraham and his life. Haran dies in Ur, and Terah, Abraham's father, decides to take Abraham and his other brother and their extended family to take them from the Ur, uh, that location, Ur of the Chaldeans, to Canaan. They travel up the Euphrates River, and they get to this place where they stop, and there they name that place after this brother who, who was deceased. There, Terah dies. And so the family just stays. They call that their homeland. That's where our story picks up in chapter 12. And so we'll go back and read these first three verses. This is what we read beginning in chapter 12. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. <clears throat> These three verses represent a turning point in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 1 and 2 tell the story of creation. And when you read through those two chapters, it is repeatedly affirmed that everything God created was good. All that God made was called good. But then you get to chapter 3, and Adam and Eve rebel against God, and God's good creation suddenly becomes severely broken. And everything after that goes wrong. Adam and Eve blame one another. Adam blames Eve for his sin. And then Eve turns and blames the serpent for her sin. And then the serpent doesn't have anyone to blame. And that's why snakes are so mean and evil and awful today because they didn't have anyone to blame in Genesis 3. And everything just keeps going south. They have sons and you think, well, maybe there's some hope. But then one son murders the other son. And continually everything in Genesis from there starts to go south. So much so that you get to Genesis 6, and here's what we read. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, so that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's how bad it had gotten. That every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. In other words, all the good and God's good creation was gone. And so in the next couple of chapters, God decides to send a flood to destroy the world. It was the great reset. Man had become so evil, everything was so severely broken that the only choice was to completely start over to wipe them out and to get a fresh start with mankind. But the text tells us there was one man who was righteous, a man named Noah. Noah, it says, was righteous. Noah walked with God. 
So at least some of the good from God's creation was still present in Noah. And so God saves Noah. He saves Noah's family out of this flood. And as you're reading along, it appears that maybe this will fix the broken world. That maybe the great reset will give a fresh start to the world and everything will be okay. But then you keep reading and you realize it didn't work. Mankind once again goes towards evil, gravitates towards evil, so much so that by the time you get to Genesis 11, mankind has come up with this plan to create a tower that reaches up to the heavens and they say to one another, if we can create this tower, then we can make a great name for ourselves and we can be like God. Every inclination of the heart was still evil. The good in God's creation was gone again. And it turns out as you're reading along that you say, well, this flood didn't work. The world was so broken that it needed more than a flood. The heart of man is so corrupted that it will take more than an external event for us to change our ways. So then you turn to chapter 12. And when you turn to chapter 12, what you learn is, is that God now has a plan to fix the situation. Verses one through three in chapter 12 do not give us every detail of the plan. It's just the beginning, but we see that God has a plan. And the plan begins with God calling a people to himself by God having a nation that he will call his people and that through this nation, God will bless the world. That through this people of God, that he will bless the world. And everything from chapter 12, verse 1, throughout Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, and throughout the Bible points back to this particular promise. Everything goes back to this promise, and it's this promise becoming reality. And the reality is ultimately seen in the story of Jesus, a descendant of Abraham. And through Jesus, God ultimately blesses the world. And through Jesus, we are able to have everything that was broken fixed. So in one sense, this passage isn't about Abraham at all. The passage is about God's great plan of redemption. That through this nation, that through these people, he would call to himself that he would bless the world. And that this Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, would fix our broken world through this great exchange of our evil hearts that are inclined toward evil all the time. That through Christ, we can receive new, different hearts. When you read chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, they are about God's plan to restore what was broken in Genesis 3 with the sin of Adam and Eve. So you read through these verses, and it's about so much more than Abraham. Except in one sense, it's very much about Abraham. Because here was a real person in a very real place at a certain point in history getting this very real call from God to leave what was familiar to him and to go into the unknown. 
Abraham was a real person who received the real promise of becoming the father of a nation. And the very scary call of God to leave his homeland, to leave his family, to leave the familiar, and to go to some place, somewhere out there, over the rainbow, into the unknown, this place that God would later show him. You see, I think if we're not careful, we can read through the Bible with our knowledge of the end of the story and divorce from those characters, the emotions and all the feelings that they would have had as God came to them. We forget the tension and the fear and everything that they felt when they received this call from God, especially someone like Abraham, the father of the Jews, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, We read this story and we envision God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I want you to leave the land that you know and I want you to go to this place that I will show you. And Abraham says, of course, I'll do it. I'm Abraham, the father of the Jews. I'm Abraham, I'm the one of great faith. It even says so in Hebrews chapter 11 that I have all of this faith. Of course I will leave and I will go. And we picture Abraham just going without questioning God at all. Except Abraham didn't have Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham didn't have any scriptures at all. Abraham heard this very scary call of God. And yes, when Stephen read the passage earlier, we read that he went. But at the same time, we know that he must have had all of this fear that he experienced right next to the faith that he held that God's call was the best thing for him. In your study guide on chapter one, I briefly mentioned the story of the first year that Katie and I were married and we sensed very much God calling us to leave everything that was familiar to us, our home in Charlotte, North Carolina, to move overseas with a missions organization that ultimately put us in Rome, Italy, working with college students. I remember those days and that call of God, and I can tell you another time all the details of how we knew that it was real, but it was very real. It was not an audible voice, but it was close. And it may have been stronger in some ways than an audible voice. And we heard that call of God, and you would think logically that if God said go, if God said to do something like that, that I would just say, well, all right, And that's it. God says, go, go. It's that easy. God will take care of us. If God says go, then I just need to go. Except I'm a planner. (laughs) Very much so. And I like to have all the questions answered before I ever go. So I wanted to know, what will it be like when we get there? Will people be nice to us? I don't speak Italian. How long will it take me to learn Italian? What will my apartment look like? What what will happen months after we're there? Or a couple of years? This was a short-term assignment. What kind of job will I have when I get back? Where will we live in the States? None of those questions were answered, and that created a whole lot of anxiety within me. I knew God's call, but fear gripped my heart as well. Now, as unnerved as I was by that experience... There were several advantages that I had. I could go online, go on the internet, look up information about Rome, Italy, and at least get a picture of what we would experience when we got there. 
I knew that there was someone on the other side of the pond working on our behalf, securing an apartment, and that individual would meet us when we landed in the airport in Rome and would take us to the apartment and show us where we needed to go to get groceries or where we needed to go if we needed to get medicine or where the doctor was, would show us how to do life in that country. And I knew, worst case scenario, we get there and the whole thing blows up. Everything goes south. Worst case scenario, I could go to the airport in Rome, buy two tickets, and in less than a day, be back here in the United States. Abraham had none of those advantages. Abraham heard the call, leave, go from your homeland, go to this place, start walking, and I'll show you where you're supposed to go. Trust me, you just need to go. Abraham couldn't look, look up where he was going. He didn't know who would be there when he got there. He had none of those advantages. And so we, we picture Abraham hearing this call of God and God says, go. And Abraham, like an army recruit, listening to his drill sergeant, salutes, yes, sir, without questioning, just goes. But we know, because we've experienced this before, that when God calls, there is fear, and I'm sure that Abraham was full of emotions and scared to death. We know that because if you've ever followed a call of God before, you know how scary it is. So with that in mind, I want us to look at three things that we see in Abraham's life that will apply to all of us in our faith journey as well. This is on your message map if you've got that with you. Number one, following God's call doesn't always make sense. Again, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're reading through Genesis and you don't know the whole story. You're just reading through it for the first time. You get to chapter 11 in Genesis and here's what you read. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Then you turn over to chapter 12 and God says to Abraham, I want you and Sarah to leave your homeland and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. Wait a second, God. This is not the one that we would choose. You see, God, Abraham um, doesn't have children and to be a great nation, to have lots of descendants, God, you know, they... They need children. And then you read on and you discover that Abraham and Sarah were both old. It wasn't like they were newlyweds and they had no children and they just hadn't had children yet, but eventually it was coming. It had been decades and decades and decades. Abraham was 75. Abraham was, uh, Abraham was 75. Sarah was 65. At this point, it wasn't like, oh, we're holding out hope. It had, had not happened so much so that Sarah is described not as she hasn't had children yet, but she is barren. Then on the heels of that sentence, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm choosing you, Abraham. You who are 75 years old, your wife is childless and has been so for all of these years, I'm choosing the two of you, childless, unqualified, unexpected Abraham. I'm choosing you to do this great thing. 
There is this common thread that runs throughout the Bible, and I want you to think about this for just a minute, how incredible this is. There are 66 books in the Bible, written over a period of over 2,000 years by approximately 40 different authors in three different languages, by people who lived in different cultures, who lived in different countries, and yet the Bible is incredibly similar in all all 66 books tell the exact same message, which tells us there is one ultimate author behind the Bible. And one of the threads that runs through all the books of the Bible is this. God loves to choose the unexpected, the underdog, the unlikely to fulfill his purposes. And we see that playing out right here at the beginning of, of creation, right here at the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel. God doesn't choose one of Abraham's brothers who has sons. God doesn't choose someone else who already has children. God goes to Abraham and says, I'm choosing you, unlikely, unexpected Abraham, to be the father of this great nation. And then you see this thread go all the way from Genesis to the very end of the Bible. We see it in the life of Jacob the second child to be born. Not the first, not the one who was supposed to inherit the blessing, but Jacob, the second child, he inherits the blessing. We see it in David. David was the runt of the family. He was the little one, the one that no one expected that God would choose to be king, and yet God chooses him to be the next king. We see it in Mary and Joseph, this poor couple from Nazareth. They were the ones to be the parents of the Savior of the world, not the ones that we would expect. And when Jesus calls his apostles, he doesn't call the elites, the ones who had power, the ones who had wealth. Jesus calls the poor fishermen and the sinners and the tax collectors and the outcasts of society. And those individuals change the Roman Empire. God chooses the least Likely, those that the world looks and says, these individuals are the least likely to succeed. And God says that I'm choosing them to fulfill my will. Years ago when I was studying at Sanford University, I had the chance to spend some time with John Piper. You may know John Piper, the author and pastor. He was there at Sanford delivering a series of lectures and one afternoon he wanted to spend some time with some students and so I and a handful of students got to sit with him and to ask him questions, theological questions, practical questions. I cannot remember a single question that was asked or answered except for one. Someone asked him about his call into the ministry, how he decided to become a pastor. And he laughed and he said, I, I never thought that I would do this. He said, when I was in high school, I never thought that I would be a pastor. And here is why. He said, I had this incredible fear of public speaking. And he said, overwhelming fear of public speaking. So much so that he said throughout high school, he made straight A's except for one class that was an English class in which he made a B. And the reason he made a B was because part of the grade was determined by an oral book report. And he told the teacher, I am not going to stand in front of the class and give an oral book report. And she said, if you don't, then you're getting a zero. And he said, I will take the zero. And that lowered his grade from an A to a B. He said, my fear of public speaking was that intense. 
And he said he went to college and he was involved in a college ministry. And one day his college pastor came up to him and said, hey, at the end of worship this week, I would like for you to pray. Would you mind doing that? Stand up and pray. And he said, and for some strange reason, I said, yes. And he said, the college pastor walked off and I went into full-blown panic mode. And he said, I went to this field, my college, and I laid down the field, and I looked up to the heavens, and I said, God, what have I done? I've agreed to pray publicly at the end of this worship service later on this week. God, I can't do this. I can't speak in front of other people. God, there is no way. If I'm going to do this, then you've got to help me do it. And he said, God did, and he prayed that week. And if you know the story of John Piper... He has spoken over his lifetime to thousands and thousands of people. And some of you in here have been to a passion conference where he has spoken in the Georgia Dome, whatever it's called now, to 40,000 college students at one time. God loves to take the unlikely, the unqualified to do his will. And so if you're in here and you think, I, I am not qualified, welcome to the club. If you think there is no way that God can use me, then you're in good company. God loves to use people. The world says, no, they can't be used to do his will. So the first thing that we know from this passage is that following God doesn't always make, make sense. The second thing is God's, following God's call always requires action. Look back at verse one. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Notice what it says here. You must go. In other words, faith is more than just a feeling. Faith is more than just the words that we say. Faith requires action. In other words, Abraham could not say to God at this moment, God, I trust you completely. God, my faith in you is unwavering. God, I trust you implicitly. Okay, Abraham, then I want you to go from where you're living now to this land that I will show you. Oh, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Are you kidding me? No, I can't do that. If Abraham said, no, I won't do that, then his faith did not have feet. Faith is only faith when it has action behind it. And, And here's the thing, in our American Christian culture, I think that we have this notion, this idea, that faith doesn't really require require obedience. I think in our culture so often, faith is nothing more than just saying, well, I believe. That's enough. I trust God. I mean, it's right here on my money, and God we trust, right? Of course we do. And it's this feeling that doesn't really require action. And yet, in the New Testament book of James, here's what we read. Faith is not enough if it's not required by action. And James says it this way. You say that you believe in God? Good. So do the demons in hell, and they shudder. In other words, faith without obedience is not real faith. It must be demonstrated in how we live. I want to point out a verse to you that is a favorite among many. If you get 20 people together who follow Christ and you say, tell me your favorite verse or passage from the Bible, good chance that one or two will name these two verses from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here they are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. I understand why this is a favorite passage. I love these two verses. I love the promise at the, the end of these two verses. And he will make your path straight. What a great promise. I want that. I don't like crooked paths. I don't like broken roads. I like straight paths. I like the promise. So what is the condition of the promise? It is trust in the Lord with all your heart. And we say, okay, well, I can do that. God, I trust you. Notice there are three aspects to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's how you feel. That is, that is the faith that you have, this emotion within you. Secondly, lean not on your own understanding. In other words, it's not just a feeling, it's your mind, it's how you think. Are you thinking biblically? But then thirdly, in all your ways, submit to him. In other words, there must be action behind it. In all your ways, follow him, put faith to your faith, and then here's a promise, and he will make your path straight. Now, most of us read that and we go, okay, I can do that. That sounds good. But then the writer of Proverbs says, you want an example? You want to see how this plays out? You read down just a few verses, and here's the example he gives. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Here's what the author says. Give to God a tithe. Give to God 10% of what he has given to you. And when you do that, then God will bless you. So do you want to put feet to your faith? Yes, I want to do that. I want to trust in God with all my heart, lean not on my own understanding, and all my ways acknowledge him. You want to do that? Okay, then honor the Lord with your wealth. Ooh, wait a second. I don't want to do that. I mean, I didn't know you were serious about it. Now you're getting kind of personal. You know, talking about money. We don't talk about money, right? I mean, I'll do it in all the other ways, but not this. And here the author says, no, this is putting feet to your faith. And when you do this, when you say, God, I will give up, God says, I promise you, I promise you that I will take care of you. First thing is, when we follow God, it doesn't always make sense. Second thing, when we follow God, it always, always requires action. And the third thing is, when we follow God, it always comes with great rewards. The voice of God comes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. And I want you to leave your father's household. Get what that means. Abraham, leave your land that you know. Leave this place that is familiar to you. Leave your people. These are the people that you know. Leave, leave all of that behind. And as well, leave your father's household. That meant he was leaving behind his inheritance. And not just a financial inheritance. He was leaving behind his place in the family line. He was leaving behind being remembered in history. So for Abraham, he was giving up all of these things. The land, the people, his place in the family history. But then notice what God says. Leave all of that, and I'm going to give you a new land. Leave the land and go to the land that I will show you. And I want you to leave the people that you know that are familiar to you. And I will make you into a great people. I will make you to a great nation. 
and I want you to leave the land, I want you to leave the people, and I want you to leave behind your place in history and your family line, and I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name remembered for generations and generations and generations to come so that you and I in here today are speaking the name Abraham. You want, you want another thread that runs throughout the Bible? Whenever God asks us to give up something, it is always because he wants to give us something better. Whatever he asks us to give up, it is because he wants to give us something that is better. That is what salvation is all about. Salvation is God saying to you, give up your life, your ways, what you think is right. Give all of that up so I can give you something better. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must give up your life. You must lose your life. But when you do that, you gain that which is truly life. And everything in life, when God says, I want you to trust me, I want you to give this up, it's always with a promise of something that is so much better. And whatever it is that we're hanging on to, whatever it is that you're hanging on to right now, and God is saying, give it up, give it up, give it up. God, I just can't. I don't think I can trust you. God, I'm worried, I'm scared. I don't know what the future, if I give this up, this is my security. God says, I want to be your security. Give it up. And I promise you, promise you, promise you that I have something better in mind for you.